Happy Mother's Day again. As we uh, launch, in, I'm Pastor Dave. If you're new here or with us uh, this, this, this morning, we're glad you're worshiping with us this Mother's Day. And we're going to jump into our message time, and we're going to have some scripture read by one of our sixth grade students. This is Miss Grace Russell. Grace is actually on a softball team that I co-coach with Tom Stevens, and I like to call her Grace in Your Face. But I told her I wouldn't say that to the church, so disregard that. No, I'm kidding. She's going to read our uh, a scripture for this morning, so um, Grace. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Every time I say your name in prayer, which is practically all the time, I thank God for you, the God I worship with my whole life in the tradition of my ancestors. I miss you a lot, especially when I remember that last cheerful goodbye, and I look forward to a joy-packed reunion. That precious memory triggers another, your honest faith, and what a rich faith it is handed down from your grandmother, Louis, to your mother, Eunice, and now to you, and the special gift of ministry you received when I laid hands on you and prayed. Keep that ablaze. God doesn't want us to be shy with his gifts, but bold and loving and sensible. So don't be embarrassed to speak up for your master or for me, his prisoner. Take your share of suffering for the message along with the rest of us. We can only keep on going after all by the power of God, who first saved us and then called us to his holy work. We had nothing to do with it. It was all his idea, a gift prepared for us in Jesus long before we knew anything about it. But we know it now since the appearance of our Savior, nothing could be plainer. Death defeated, life vindicated, in a steady blaze of light, all through the work of Jesus. Thanks, Grace. Death defeated, life vindicated, all through the work of Jesus. I love those words. Okay, good morning. Hey, um, Mother's Day is always a little tricky because you think... What do you preach on on Mother's Day? I mean, do you talk about moms, mothers? Do you talk about the pain of Mother's Day sometimes for people? Maybe some of you maybe just recently lost a mom. I, didn't, I decided not to talk about that today. So it's my first Mother's Day, so you have to give me grace. Um, and grace read, and you're going to give me grace. Uh, I'd like to talk about a subject that I think maybe mothers would appreciate. And it's something that you, if you are a mother, you actually love to talk about as well. And that is your kids. Yeah, every mother likes to talk about their kids. And so this Mother's Day, we're going to talk about our kids and the role that they have in our church and our responsibility to them as Christ followers in the body of Christ. So I'm going to start with this psalm. This is Psalm 127, verses 3 and 4. Here's what the psalmist writes. Children are a heritage from the Lord offspring, a a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Now, that word heritage is actually a Hebrew word that means something of lasting value that is passed down from generation to generation. And the imagery that the psalmist tries to build off of in these verses is the same image as that of a warrior who has the ability to influence and be a part of the battle from a long distance away. 
He, he's not there. He's actually not on the battlefield. He's not there himself, but he's a part of it. He influences it. He impacts it through his arrows. He stands back and, sh- you know, and fires from a distance and has impact way over there from way over here because of his arrows. And the idea here is this. What the psalmist is saying is we too can influence our world from a distance. We can influence our world long after we are, we are gone through the legacy of our children, the legacy of the next generation. So this morning we're going to talk about how we as a church can intentionally raise up young people who are champions for Jesus Christ. And, and to do that, I'd like to take a look at a relationship in the scriptures that's a real significant one, one that's real special. We're going to talk about the relationship between a guy named Paul and a guy named Timothy. Many of you know this, but Paul was, it was an older follower of Jesus who took a younger man named Timothy under his wing and he began to disciple him. He began to groom him to be and become a spiritual leader. And what we have in the New Testament are actually two letters that Paul wrote directly to Timothy while they were apart. Just these letters that he wrote, just this correspondence between these two men. And, and actually... I do not think that Paul ever had the idea in his mind that these letters would be circulated and recorded and copied and read and studied throughout the generations. I I honestly believe that he was just writing a letter, a couple letters, to this young man who he cared deeply about and wanted to see grow in Christ. Can you imagine the writer's block he might have had if he had known how many people would actually read these letters? I do not think he knew, but the Holy Spirit did know. The Holy Spirit was working in him. So we have these letters, and we get kind of an inside look into the relationship between these two gentlemen. And as we do that, I want to learn from Paul, I want to learn from Timothy, I want to learn from their relationship about how we, as a church, might be more effective at passing faith onto the next generation and raising up young people who are champions for Jesus Christ in our world. So what we're going to do is I've, I've just kind of cruised through the, the letters of First and Second Timothy and I've picked out a few passages and a few things that I believe we as a church can and must learn from Paul as he mentors this young man. All right, so the first thing... A church that raises up kids who are spiritual champions will do is that church will understand the crucial role of family in faith development. This is something the Bible often refers to as legacy. uh, And a spiritual legacy is something that every single one of us, whether we know it or not, has um, been given and it's something that we are passing on to the next generation. Everyone in this room received some sort of a spiritual legacy. It was a good spiritual legacy. It was a bad spiritual legacy. It was very intentional. Perhaps it was unintentional. But all of us here, we were given by our parents and by our communities and the people that we knew growing up a spiritual legacy. And now, in turn, we are giving the same thing to the next generation. To illustrate this point, I want to talk to you about two families that were actually contemporaries of one another in the 1700s. This is kind of a a real... Vivid illustration of the power that families have in the faith development and lives of children. The power that families have to to build into and pass something on to the next generation. The first family I want to tell you about is the Edwards family. Mr. Edwards, again, lived in the early 1700s. He was a minister. Both he and his wife loved God, very committed to Christ. They served the Lord. And just listen to the kind of legacy... The legacy of faith that Mr. and Mrs. Edwards passed on. 
This is what came out of their family over the next three to five generations. Fourteen college presidents, a hundred college professors, thirty judges, a hundred members of the clergy. Some of you remember the famous pastor from the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. Is that name ring a bell for any of you? He preached a real famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which kind of sounds terrifying actually, doesn't it? But, but it was a really powerful sermon that really helped people uh, come to God and, and follow Christ. He was part of this family line. He was one of those hundred uh, clergy members. Sixty physicians came out of this family, sixty authors, and last but not least, a hundred lawyers. No family can be perfect. Um, we compare the Edwards family, this family, and the legacy they left with the Jukes family. Mr. Jukes was a common thief. And the legacy that he fostered over the next several generations went like this. 30 professional paupers or beggars, 60 thieves, 130 convicted criminals in this one family, 55 acts of sexual obsession. I do not know what that actually entails, and we won't dive into it here on Mother's Day. Um, you're welcome, moms. Only 20 who ever learned a trade. Only 20 from this entire family who ever even learned a trade. 10 who served prison time, seven of which were murderers. You kind of contrast these two families, and you can see the power of family and the kind of legacy that different families leave behind. Now, here's what I am not saying I am not saying that the Jukes' children were all hopelessly destined to have terrible lives because of their ancestry, nor am I saying that the Edwards children were automatically destined for success and given some sort of a free pass with God. No, every single individual has the opportunity to contribute to, stay in, and or get out of and break the cycle that they find themselves in, the legacy that they've been handed. But here's the point. There is obviously, and Scripture affirms this time and time again, a very strong, powerful principle, and that is this. What you do in your life will create a pattern and cycle of behavior that gets passed on to the following generations. You see, no one lives as an island. We have this idea in our, in our modern culture that people are, are individuals and we live in this individualistically minded society where it's like, it's just about me and it only impacts me. Nothing can be further from the truth. The life you live will create a pattern and cycle of behavior that gets passed down to the next generation. Friends, you know this. Do you know what... When Christ followers are asked, who and what are the things that most influenced your faith? Do you know the number one answer that is given, the most frequent answer to that question? What is it that most influenced your faith? What is it that most helped you become a radical, committed follower and knower of Jesus Christ? The number one answer, by far and away, is mom. Mom. I overwhelmingly, like, she destroys dad on this one. Um, and that's a whole nother sermon. But mom is statistically the most influential thing and a person in the lives of people who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that, it's, it's interesting that that's exactly what Paul acknowledges in Timothy in these letters, isn't it? He, he writes this. 
I am reminded of your, your, your sincere faith, Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. He, he acknowledges that this, this faith relationship that Timothy has, is stepping into and has this man of God that he has, has grown into and become, it all started with the faith of his grandmother and his mother. There's two women who just loved and served God. And we don't know really anything about them, but we know that their faith was significant enough that Paul mentions it here. You see, church, this is why we must learn to love and support and encourage and equip and empower our mothers. Because the responsibility and the opportunity involved in being a mother is tremendous. It's overwhelming. And and the church must be a place that always lifts up and encourages and honors and respects the mothers amongst us. Mom, let me me just encourage you with this today. Some of you are here and you hear these kind of statistics and you hear about the influence that you have on the lives of your children and the next generation. And maybe for some of you that just feels like more weight that you're carrying. Maybe you're looking at some kids who aren't walking with Christ and What you hear me saying right now is, I knew it. I knew it was all my fault. And now Pastor Dave is telling me it's all my fault. And I have more guilt-ridden now than I have ever been. And, And ladies, that is the last thing we want you to hear today. Because you know what? That is not from the Lord. God is not ever about guilt. Guilt is about looking back at our failures and dwelling on them. And thinking, if only, and I wish I would have. God is never about guilt. You know what God's about? He's about conviction. And conviction always says, learn from what happened back there so that you can move forward and be and become more of who God longs for you to be. You know what's something I'm learning right now? In my late, late, late 30s, I'm hanging on my 30s by like a... I'm learning something that some of you learned a long time ago, and that's this. You never stop being a parent. You never stop being a parent. It is not too late. It is not over. For you moms out there, you're still mom. I don't care how old your kids are. I am 39 years old and it blows me away how much significance and weight and importance my mom still holds in my life. You know, she's still, she's still mom. She still has influence and sway and the ability to make me feel good and or bad sometimes, right? That's, that's mom, because she, she is and will always be mom. You, you are and will always be mom. Take advantages. Continue to take advantage of every opportunity God gives you to be mom. No matter where your kids are, in their walk of faith, how old they are, God will still continue to give you the chance to be an enormous influence in the lives of your children and in the lives of others. This is what... Uh, this is what Paul says. He says, churches that raise kids who are champions for Christ understand the significance and power and influence of families. Moms are number one on the list. You know who comes second on the list? Dad. Dad is the second most influential thing in the lives of people who follow Christ. Number three is pastor. A responsibility that I and the other pastors on staff here at Cedar Mill do not take lightly. And then fourth, fourth on the list, and some of you will appreciate this, 
fourth most, most influential person under thing in the faith life of a person who follows Christ? Grandparents. Three out of the top four are from the family. There is so much power and significance and sway and influence in the family. Here's what Chuck Swindoll says, and I know Chuck's kind of old school, but man, he was smart and he had some good stuff to say. So here's what Chuck says about this. The family is the place where principles are hammered and honed on the anvil of everyday living. In other words, it is the place where character is taught and caught. It is where we learn that we are loved and cared for. It is where we learn that we have worth and have something to contribute. It should be where we learn that we can be forgiven when we have failed. It is where family members show one another what God is like and how he relates to us. It is where children learn obedience so they will understand what it means to obey God. Home is where we learn who God is and learn to love him. Home is where we learn who we are and who others are. It's where we learn to live unselfishly with other people taking them into consideration. All of this and much, much more happens primarily within the family. Friends, as a church, we must never forget the family. We must never forget that one of our primary responsibilities as a church family is to empower the family at home to pass on faith to the next generation. This is vitally important and we must not overlook it. A church that raises up kids who are spiritual champions understands the crucial role of family in faith development. Second, a church that raises up kids who are spiritual champions sees the kids of the church as theirs. Time and time again, studies have shown the importance of children having a number of significant adult relationships outside of their immediate families. And the power of this is staggering. The power of kids who actually have a group of adults outside of their immediate family who know them and love them and care about them is a significant indicator um, of whether or not they will grow to be emotionally and spiritually healthy adults. The stats on this would blow you away. And church is such a wonderful place for this to happen. Friends, church should be the place where our children are known by safe adults who care for them. I believe Paul actually is one of these people for Timothy. I love how he just comes into Timothy's life. He's not Timothy's uncle. He's not his grandpa. He's not his dad. But he just comes into into Timothy's life and he invests in this young man and he inserts himself as a caring adult who's invested in him. This is what he writes. This, This is how he starts both of the letters that he writes to Timothy. To Timothy, my dear son. So he starts one and the other one says... To Timothy, my true son in the faith. See, Paul doesn't tiptoe around his role in Timothy's life. He doesn't doesn't tiptoe around his responsibility to raise up this young man to be a spiritual champion. He owns it and claims it and establishes himself as someone who is invested in him. Earlier we talked about the top four, four influences in the faith life of a person. Anyone here know what number five is? All these people, teacher was a guess, that's a good guess. All these people were asked, looking back, now that you're living for Christ, now that you're sold out for Jesus, now that you're living this life of of radical world transformation in Him, what is it that most influenced you? Let me get mom, dad, pastor, grandparent, and number five, Sunday school. Is it on the board already? No, you guys got it. Sunday school. 
do you have my notes? The first service had no clue. I'll tell them you're smarter than them. No. Sunday school. Isn't that shocking to you? How often do churches treat Sunday school as just Sunday school? Take care of the kids for a little bit. You know, we're just looking for someone to kind of fog a mirror and be down there with the kids so they don't, so there's not anarchy. No, friends. Sunday school, we don't want Lord of the Flies down below the gym. No, we have... There is so much value when adults decide to spend time every single week investing in the lives of kids, showing them that they care, teaching them about Jesus. It is not and must never be just Sunday school. This, this, the safety and spiritual growth of our children must be, must continue to be our highest priority. Perhaps even more important than what happens in, in here is what is happening over there and down there. I'm, I'm thrilled to tell you that, that after a, a number of months of weeding through resumes and talking with candidates, the leadership um, and elders of our church have selected the new children's pastors uh, for Cedar Mill. Uh, it's Paul and Bethany. Yeah, you can say, well, that's great. Karen's happy because her husband was on the search team and we met on a lot of Sunday afternoons. Now, uh, Paul and Bethany Richter come to us as phenomenal people. They love Jesus. They exude Jesus um, from every pore of their body. They're committed to him. They have five children of their own, um, three that are theirs biologically, one that they're in the process of adopting and another that's a foster child. Uh, They... Uh, are passionate about raising their kids and every kid to know and follow Jesus and do great things for Him in this world. They are phenomenal individuals. And when they get here, they are going to help us and they are going to lead us and they are going to push our ministry to children forward. But church, let me tell you this. It is not their ministry. It will never be their ministry. It's our ministry. Not their kids, our kids. Because every kid that walks through this this church, every kid that comes through our doors, we have a responsibility as a faith community to do everything we can to pass on faith in Jesus Christ, the hope and life-giving joy that is in that to them. Paul and Bethany will be a tremendous help to us, and I cannot wait to introduce you to them, but they cannot do it by themselves. A church that raises up kids who are spiritual champions sees the kids of the church as theirs, ours. Those are our kids. A church that raises up kids who are spiritual champions makes prayer foundational in the relationship. As I kind of perused the letters between Paul and Timothy, one thing that jumped out at me was just how central prayer was to their relationship. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Just one example. Do you pray for your kids? Now, I mean, like, do you really pray for your kids and our kids? Because I know like everyone prays for their kids. God for my kids, God for my kids, right? But like, do you go before the Lord and say, God... My kids, the kids in our world today, they face challenges and struggles and obstacles that I never could have dreamed of. The enemy is coming after them with both barrels and they need you and we need you. Will you help us? Will you help them? 
Protect them, guide them, lead them, train them. Help us as a church to be a place where they are, they are fed and empowered and encouraged and built up. Do you pray for your kids in that way? Or maybe even more important, maybe a better question is, do you pray with them? Pray with your kids, with our kids. There are six New Testament letters that are attributed to both Paul and Timothy. They, they wrote the letters together. Six books of the Bible where they, they're written together. And or at least Timothy is present as Paul writes. Because uh, he's referenced in, in six. And in all six, we, we find reference to them praying together. Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we, Paul and Timothy, pray for you. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you. We always thank God for all of you. We, Paul and Timothy, mentioning you in our prayers. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy wrote those words together. We constantly, we, Paul and Timothy, constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. Here's one thing I've discovered about these two men. Prayer was foundational to their relationship. It was not just a routine. It was not just something they did together. It was not just an activity that they checked off of a list. It was woven into the very fabric of how they connected. It's almost like if you took prayer out of their relationship, the entire relationship would have been different. Got any relationships like that? Where if, if like it wasn't for prayer, I don't even know that we would... Relate in the same way anymore. You have a relationship like that with your kids? You see, prayer is so essential, friends, because when we pray, we instinctively teach our children that God is real, that God is present, that God is personal, that He's not just a subject or someone we talk about, but that He's someone we talk to, and that He cares about us, and that He listens to us, and He wants us to listen to Him. You see, prayer is the personal part of faith. It's the relational aspect of faith. If you take prayer out of our faith, it's just religion. It's just study. It's just a bunch of information. Prayer is where it gets personal and real and God becomes alive. And that is why prayer is so essential when we talk to our kids about God and when we interact with them. We have to include Him in that. We have to introduce them to Him, not just tell them about Him. You know, as, as a dad, I have to tell you that you don't get a free pass on, on being a dad when you're a pastor. As a dad, I fail at a lot of stuff. Uh, like most of you parents out there, you probably can think of a lot more areas where you, where you lack, where you wish you were better than the places where you just feel like an all-star. And, and I'm no different than you. My, if my wife came up, she could fill whiteboards of things that I could do much better as a father and certainly a husband. But one place where... I, I think I've had at least a little bit of success is in the area of prayer with my kids. And I have to tell you, it's not because it's easy. Um, I'm actually not the kind of person that is naturally drawn to pray. Prayer isn't easy for me. Isn't something that I, I'm an extroverted person. I don't like to be myself. I don't find myself accidentally praying for hours on end in my office all week like many of you think that I do. It does not happen that way for me at all. I have to schedule prayer, be intentional about prayer, really focus on being a man who is connected with God personally. That's something I have to work at. And 
I'll tell you what, I, I want the same for my kids. I want them to know God. And so I schedule, I, I routinely look for places where I can pray with them. And, and they, if they came up, they would tell you it's true. And sometimes they like it and sometimes it bugs them. But every time we're in the car together, just us, we're praying. We're praying on the way to school. We're praying on the way to baseball. We're praying on the way to stuff. Because the car is a place for me where like, every time I get in the car, alarm bells go off. Pray now, pray now. There won't be time later. Right? You'll be too busy. You'll be too distracted. Something else will come up. So I just use the car as this little sort of traveling sanctuary where we go and meet God. Uh, the same is true with bedtime. And I, I'm probably like 8 for 10. I probably bat like 80%. I'm praying for my kids at bedtime. But it's a time where I connect with them and the Lord. I just encourage you. I implore you, church. Find places. Whatever works for you. Maybe the car won't work for you. It works for me. But find places in your life where you can weave prayer into your relationships, especially your relationships with the children in your life. It is essential if we want to pass faith on to the next generation. Right, a church that raises up kids who are spiritual champions makes prayer foundational in the relationship. And then number four, has spiritual leaders that display humility. This is one that churches get wrong all the time. And, and so many of you just need freedom in this area. And I, and I hope to give you just a little bit this morning. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, some of us have read that statement many, many times in the scriptures. And when you think about that as just kind of a general statement in the Bible, it, it, can, it can be a little bit two-dimensional and sometimes even sort of flat and placid. But when you consider that this is a man who writes a very personal letter to the, to the young person that he is mentoring, when you consider he is speaking to the person that he is, that he is trying to be an example to, that he's trying to say, hey, follow Christ the way I follow Christ, this is an extremely vulnerable and humble moment. This is him saying, Timothy, you know, I'm not perfect. It's not about being perfect. I've got struggles. I've got failures. There's a lot of things in my life. This is Paul saying to Timothy, I want to take this relationship from I'm the leader, you're the follower. From I'm the teacher, you're the learner. To I'm just learning like you are and I need the grace of God just as much as you do. And I think that was powerful for Timothy. I think, I think this must have encouraged Timothy and, and motivated him and helped him want to follow Christ. One thing that my mother, God bless her on Mother's Day, and if she listens into the podcast, Happy Mother's Day, Mom. One thing that she's often expressed to my brother and I is that how she wishes, looking back on our childhood, that she had weaved God into our family more intentionally. She talks about how you know, she wishes that she would have prayed with us more and read scripture with us more and done things in the church more and like served God more with us. And, and, I, and I have this sense that she carries around all this regret as she looks back that she just didn't do enough with us for God. Now, my brother is a very committed believer and I'm a pastor, so I'm not sure exactly where she thinks she went completely wrong, but uh, I'm trying not to take it personally. Um, no, but she just carries around this mother guilt. And I find that this mother guilt 
is a pretty common thing. But here's the truth. Here's the truth about my family growing up. My parents were very new young believers when I was a, when I was a kid, when I was being raised. And we all just sort of grew and learned about God together as a family. I didn't have a mom and dad that were these spiritual giants. Like every morning my dad was there with the giant Bible at the breakfast table, you know, praying for hours and incense. You know, none of that. That wasn't my family growing up. Um, but you know what? There was so much freedom in my family. There was so much authenticity. There was so much room to discover God and to mess up with God and to backtrack and learn. And, and there was never this false expectation of being this enormous, perfect Christian person or, or family. And that was so freeing. And it's such an affirmation to who my parents were and to even who they are today. Friends, authenticity... Humility is such a huge thing. George Barna, who did just a ton of research um, about how we can raise kids into spiritual champions, writes a book. He did a ton of surveys and interviewed people, and he collected all this data, and he wrote this book called Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. I got a lot of information from him today. Some of you have read this book. Uh, and George is just a fact guy. If you meet George, he's, he's, all, he's like an engineer in Christian ministry. This is just facts. You guys who are engineers out there, you would love this book. because It's like, here's what the facts say. There's no emotion included at all. It's great um, for some of you. But here's what Barna discovered through his research. Another teaching tool that helps many parents is their willingness to tell personal stories and integrate some degree of personal vulnerability into their narrative in order to capture the attention and drive home a point. When parents effectively describe a compelling life event that resulted in personal transformation, children are more likely to glean valuable wisdom from the story. I guess the question for us as parents and as a church family is, do our kids see us as humble, learning, growing Christ followers who need God's grace just as much as they do? I hope so. A church that raises up kids who are spiritual champions has spiritual leaders that display humility. And then number five, encourages them to use their gifts now. Encourages young people to use their gifts now. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. Listen to these words. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Till I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now let me read that same passage to you from Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. I love how Peterson says this. This just fires me up. And if this doesn't get you excited today, then, well... Humbug on you. Okay. This is what, how Peterson uh, translates this passage. Get the, this is Paul writing to his young mentee. Get the word out. Teach all these things. And don't let anyone put you down because you're young. Teach believers with your life. By word, by demeanor, by love, by faith, by integrity. Stay at your post. Reading scripture. Giving counsel. Teaching. And that special gift of ministry you were given when the leaders of the church laid hands on you and prayed, keep that dusted off and in use. In other words, Timothy, you've got gifts, use them. In other words, Timothy, you've got gifts, use them. In other words, young people, you've got gifts, use them. 
Paul says, Timothy, you are a young man, but you are not the church of tomorrow. You are the church of today. And friends, it's kind of a sub-point here. Part of what this meant for Paul was that he worked at preparing Timothy's faith just as much, if not more, than he worked at protecting Timothy's faith. I'll say that again. He worked at preparing Timothy's faith just as much as, if not more, than he worked at protecting Timothy's faith. You see, we have to understand that this situation that Timothy is in in Ephesus, the situation that Paul sends him into and and leaves him in, was not an easy situation. This was a city full of cults and prostitution and heretical teaching about God, but Paul was always stretching Timothy and pushing him to use his gifts in ministry in significant ways. He did not let him just settle for easy, placid places where serving God was easy because that is not where people grow. And yet so many of us so often expect our kids to grow in in just those kind of environments, in places where it's very safe and very secure. And then we wonder, how come our kids aren't developing bold, risky, daring faith? Well, maybe because we never let them. Do we do this with our kids? Do we give them challenging, significant ministry responsibilities in the church? Friends, I I want to. I I, I long to see the day when the students of our church serve, even lead ministries, right alongside the adults in our congregation. I long to see the day when our kids are on the front lines taking on challenges and struggles and difficulties that stretch them out of their comfort zones. Because if we truly believe that using your gifts is one of the primary ways that God disciples us and grows us in Him, then we had better start getting our kids using their gifts now. All right, final point. I know it's Mother's Day and you guys are thinking about brunch. Give me one more point. We are almost done. A church that raises up kids who are spiritual champions shows the Christian life more than they share the Christian life. Friends, just telling them will not work. Paul understands this perhaps more than anyone. He says this to Timothy. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. And he kind of closes off this section by by saying, continue in what you have learned, what you have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You have watched me live this stuff. This is not just words for me. Paul is saying, Timothy... You know that Jesus is true. You know that life in Him is rich and abundant because you have watched me live it. I relate this to like my high school friends versus my college friends. I had great high school friends. We did a lot of great stuff together. They impacted my life significantly. They piled around. Memories galore. But then I got to college. And my roommates had such a, a, a deeper, more long-lasting impact on my life than my high school friends did. Why? I lived with them. We were together 24-7 in the dorm room with, with your college roommates, with people that you live with. There is no hiding. You can't hide from those folks, right? There's no pretend. There's no public face, private face. It's all one face when you're in the dorms. I lived with a guy who was 6'5", like 2, 250, played football. The two of us shared a 10-foot by 10-foot room. There was not lots of extra space. <laughs> I knew them. They knew me. Again, this is from Barna. 
He talks about how modeling and living it is so much more powerful than just talking about it. Barna says, Our research suggests that behavioral modeling is the most powerful component in a person's efforts to influence a child. It appears that as our society becomes increasingly secular, our children are developing a hypocrisy detector, an internal sensitivity to actions, attitudes, values, and beliefs that are inherently contradictory to words that have been uttered as instructions. When an inconsistency is identified, a child is prone to do two things. One, ignore the instruction itself, and two, conclude that there is no specific command that they must obey. If, is Barna's words, not mine, if you are struggling with particular aspects of raising your child, especially in relation to the faith dimension, step back and evaluate your behavior. You may discover that while you are able to voice the appropriate concepts to your young ones, your behavior negates those words. The do as I do, the do as I say, not as I do approach, is increasingly incompatible with effective influence upon children. Funny how kids listen to what we do more than they listen to what we say. When I was a seventh grader, we moved to a new home. We were always moving around. My dad was in the Air Force. We moved to a new home. We actually moved across base to another house, like a, a better house opened up, and so we kind of shifted, shifted homes. And uh, every time we moved, my mom's decorations would just relocate in different places around the house, but they would change slightly. Every time you move, you kind of pull out old things and put away you know, different things. And all of a sudden, one afternoon, I came out, and on the wall in the hall in our new home was this picture of me that I had never seen before. It was a, like a head and shoulders, black and white picture. And as I had studied the picture real closely, I was thinking, I, I do not remember having this picture taken. And then I thought, and why in the world is it in black and white? It was before like black and white pictures were all back in vogue and everything. So I was like, huh, that's kind of strange. So I went downstairs to the kitchen, and my mom was in there, and I said, hey, mom, when did I have the picture taken that's up, hanging up in the hallway? Well, like, when did we do that? And my mom kind of stops and looks at me, and she says, are you serious? And I was like, very serious, mom, about the picture, right? Like, it was like, there's kind of a strange question. I was like, yeah, I'm serious. Like, when did we have that taken? And she said, we didn't have that taken. It's not a picture of you. That's a picture of your father. I thought the picture of my father was me. It was one of the most horrifying, <laughs> terrifying... No, that's not true. Really. I can now see what fate has in store for me. Um, actually, if I turn out to be a, as good a man as my dad, I'd be thrilled. But, uh, but it was a pretty revealing day. And it's just actually kind of a fun physical example of a very significant spiritual re- reality. Our kids end up on some level having the same kind of faith as we model for them. And not just us as parents, but us as a as a church congregation. The children that grow up as a part of Cedar Mill Bible Church to understand that they are learning from all of us all the time. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like to know Him? What does it look like to live for God in this world? And they're looking at me and they're looking at you and they're figuring it out not by what we say but by what they observe in our lives. I have to tell you, friends, not as your pastor but as just a guy who's got three little kids who are growing up and learning to follow Jesus in this church, let's get busy. Because I want my kids to live radically for Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to realize 
It's not just about me. It's not just about my wife. It's about all of us. We are all in this together. We are all in together on raising up and passing faith to the next generation, whether we like it or not. We're in on it together. You see, demonstration always trumps explanation. Demonstration always trumps explanation. And this should actually ring true to us because God knows this as well. You see, we serve a God who doesn't just say, you know, from the sky with a bullhorn, I love you, I care for you, I long to have a relationship with you. We have a God, a God who does not just say it, but who demonstrates it. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we have a God who shows us who shows us who he is, who shows us how to live, who shows us the depths and and reaches and length of his love. And that's exactly the love that we remember when we come to the table. This morning we're going to finish our service by sharing the Lord's Supper together, that the the students are going to serve us. I'm going to ask that when they do, you would hold on to the bread and you would hold on to the juice. But this is a moment where we remember, God showed me. He shows us how much he loves us. And now, by his power and by his grace and by his Holy Spirit working in us, we have the opportunity to show his love and demonstrate it to others the way he has demonstrated to us. We have the chance to be like Jesus with skin on for the children and students for the next generation in our midst. We cannot do it by our strength. We cannot do it by sheer willpower. But we can do it by the power of the living God in us. And so this morning, as the communion elements are passed, I'm going to ask the team here just to play lightly for a minute before we launch into the song. I want to give you a minute to just consider this list. Let's go back to the list. Is there one thing that God's asking you to do today? Not five, not six, not ten ways you need to be a better parent. No. One thing in your life where the Holy Spirit has said, you know what? I need to engage that. I need to re-engage that. Maybe it's, it's a role that you just need to recommit to, that you're, that you're already in and already doing. You just need to, yeah, I'm still in. Maybe for some of you it's just an attitude change. Maybe you've been a part of some ministries here, but your heart has just kind of gotten far, and now you need to re-engage on a heart level. Maybe for some of you God is saying, it's time to get involved with the next generation. It's time to have impact and influence. And take real seriously this call to pass our faith to the generations that come behind us. Maybe for some of you that involves Royal Family Kids Camp or even getting to know our new children's pastors and joining them this coming fall. You do not know what it is for you. But would you consider one place where the Holy Spirit this morning may be asking you to take a step forward in faith towards our kids? Would you do that with me today? Pray about that. Hold on to the elements. We'll receive them together in just a minute. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our kids. Thank you for the gifts that they are, the heritage they are, the blessing. In spite of our weaknesses and failures, Father, just help us to to live for you in a way that causes them to seek you and know you and find you. Use them in our midst. Use them and their gifts and their passions and abilities to push us forward as a congregation. May you, Holy Spirit, speak into each one of their hearts and minds and souls. You are the church now. Thank you, Father, for 
your faithfulness, for your love and grace. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.